If you like Area 45, you're going to enjoy the Hoover Institution's other podcasts, Uncommon Knowledge, The Classicist with Victor Davis Hanson, and The Libertarian with Richard Epstein. Subscribe now to the Hoover Podcast at hoover.org slash podcasts. That's hoover.org slash podcasts. Hoover Podcast, ideas defining a free society. Hello, it's Wednesday, May the 1st, and welcome to Area 45, a Hoover Institution podcast examining the policy avenues available to the 45th President of the United States. I'm Bill Whalen, the Hoover Institution's Virginia Hobbs Carpenter Research Fellow. Our guest today here in Hoover's recording studio on the campus of Stanford University is David Brady. Dave Brady is the Davies Family Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution. He's also the Bowen H. and Janice Arthur McCoy Professor of Political Science at the Stafford Graduate Business School. Good to see you, Dave. Nice to see you. Thanks for having me. So, this is a two-month anniversary for you and I. Two months ago to this day, you, me, and Doug Rivers, your partner in crime here in politics at Hoover, did a podcast in which we talked about the state of the presidential race. And I think this is a good time to bring it back up because in a couple days we'll be at May the 3rd. That is exactly nine months before the Iowa caucuses, February the 3rd, 2020. So now we're talking about primary gestation, if you will, a nine-month period. When we last talked about the race, Dave, um, there were 11 Democrats who had jumped in the race. Uh, in the time since then, nine more Democrats have jumped in. So we're now up to 20 Democrats in all uh, challenging uh, for the right to challenge Donald Trump. Uh, if you go on the FEC's website, actually, and go under where it says campaign finance data, how many individuals do you think you'll find running for president? 20, 30, 40? 705 right now. That's all it I'm takes. I'm not one of them. It is, it is simply easy to run for president if you just want to put in the money to qualify at the FEC. That's a whole other matter if you want to qualify for a Democratic debate, and we'll get that into a minute. But 705 individuals so far in this race. I think 1,600 ran in, uh, in 2016 uh, in all. Um, but here's the question, Dave. So I look at this race right now, and I see something of a repeat of the 2016 cycle in this regard. The slogan in 2015 at this point was 17 and 16. There were actually 17 Republicans at one point who were running for their party's nomination. Uh, it quickly went on down toward the end of the year to about a dozen, but you had 17 at this point. But now you have 20 Democrats. Is this a sign of where the parties are, Dave? And is this in some regards a sign maybe of party weakness that this many Democrats can jump in and all compete for this? Well, the standard uh, political science literature would have said the party controls this. Right. Uh, it appears clear that from the Republicans in uh, 2016 and the Democrats with Bernie Sanders right. that uh, they no longer control it. For the Democrats in 2020, it seems to me that's even more so. They've cut down on the number of superdelegates, mm -hmm. and, uh, and the number of candidates that are uh, now see that they have a chance, mm -hmm. that would not have been the case in the past. Right, and Democrats do proportional primaries. They do. That's going to be a, a sort of a standard saw at this time of the year, as you know, is, oh, my God, we may have the first since 1952 uh, national party convention that goes beyond one ballot. But uh, this year, it does appear uh, there's some uh, stronger possibility of it because they do have proportional ballots. There's so many people. Right. Uh, they're going to be divided early on. And moreover, the Democrats have pushed the line forward so that uh, by uh, three months after the Iowa primary, we're going to know there's going to be a large number of delegates selected. 
Right. Now, Will Rogers had the old line, what, I'm not a member of an organized party, I'm, I'm a Democrat. Right? Yes. So there's always been a little bit of a cantankerous nature to being a Democrat, but I think this is worth exploring because, yeah, in the old days, yeah, the elders would have kind of tapped one or two people on the shoulders and say, you, you folks run. But now it's every man jack, it seems, is in this race, 20 overall. Now, granted, a few are going to be gone um, by the end of the year. And if you look at the polls right now, you see some Democrats. Kirsten Gillibrand is a good example of this. She is struggling for money. She is at zero percent at some polls. Uh, she may be a goner. Jay Inslee, the governor of Washington, who's running on climate change. He struggles at 1%. On the other hand, Dave, they have a debate coming up uh, at the end of June in Miami on CNN, and CNN has made it sinfully easy to get on that national debate stage. All you need is 1% in the polls, and I think you need 62, 65,000 online donors. And if you're familiar with all the world of online donations, that's pretty easy to get if you know yes. the right people. So they're going to have a very crowded debate stage. Well, I think it's uh, it is true, and I, I don't. I think they're still debating how they're going to handle it. Mm -hmm. But the Republicans, uh, I thought, handled it pretty well in 2016. They had a first team and a second team, right? And the first team was based on uh, how many, how many, how what your vote was in the polls. The reason that's important is because what you don't want is your front. Uh, what the front runners don't want is to be on a stage mm -hmm. with somebody's at one percent who then attacks them on a particular issue and won't get off of it, right. gets a meme going, uh, gets a social network going. And and uh, so the front runners have a lot to lose, and the one percenters have almost nothing to lose. So I thought that the Republicans dividing them, letting the people in the second tier, if some of them came forward, and Carly Fiorina came forward a bit at that time. Mm -hmm. But I, I think that it does matter how the Democrats handle that. They must be negotiating it now. Right. So I want you, Professor Brady, to educate me on a few things, and let me run a few. Let me pretend I'm your You're student in trouble. here. <laughs> let me run a few student questions by you, and I'll let you as the wide professor either agree with my premise or shoot me down. Premise number one, Dave Brady, the Democratic Party heading into 2020 is the Republican Party heading into 2016. In terms of where primary voters are, primary voters are not pleased with their party in terms of questions of what is a Democrat in 2020, just as Republicans question what a Republican was in 2016, as in a lot of Democrats, as in a lot of Republicans in 2016, all claiming to be the heart and soul of the party. Well, there's, there's a certain part of that, the part you just said, is, which is absolutely true. I think the part, well, so uh, the first part uh, I would say is true, is that there, there is, uh, in 2016 for the Republicans, it really was uh, a battle for what's the heart and soul of the Republican Party. And Donald right. Donald Trump, in my view, changed that. The outsider came in and he won. Mm -hmm. It wasn't Rubio. It wasn't Bush. It wasn't Kasich. Uh, it was nobody who'd held office. So there is, in the sense, the uh, Democratic Party struggle for what's the heart of the party. Uh, how far left is it? The difference, I think, is that in 2016, there was going to be uh, an open race. Barack Obama was uh, stepping down. And in 2020, it's Donald Trump, and that figures very heavily in Democratic voters' minds. Right. The number one issue uh, among voters is, what's the most important thing about the candidate? 46% say we want to beat Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. And then the next number is down in the ten. So that that the fact that they you know they want to beat Trump right. makes a difference uh, different from the Republicans in 2016. Okay, uh, question number two. 
Uh, Joe Biden is Jeb Bush version 2.0. Say that again, sorry. Joe Biden is Jeb Bush version 2.0. Strong in the polls. Going to have money, familiarity, and running very hard on one issue, electability. Well, the first thing I'd like to say, I'm glad you're not in my class. These are these are very good and hard uh, questions to answer. I, I think that's, that is a reasonable premise. Biden's run three times before. Uh, he's always managed to make some mistakes. Right. Uh, I will say that uh, I thought he brought out his campaign mm -hmm. uh, better than anybody, with possibly the exception of Kamala Harris. Right. Uh, he jumped up in the polls. He has a bit bigger lead than Bush ever had. Right. But he is in that same position. Right. With the and that is, he's the establishment candidate. Uh, not the Bernie Sanders is not the establishment candidate. He's right. the anti-establishment. Uh, mm -hmm. So I think that puts uh, them similarly on that ground. And then, then the question is, he's got a little bit bigger lead, right. but he is the establishment candidate, and they're going to go after him. Right. Uh, and the other parallel, Dave, would be uh, Jeb Bush launches his campaign in Miami. Now, granted, he was a former mayor of Florida, Miami's largest city in Florida, yeah. so okay, smart place to be. But also there is a very strong message going underneath that that I can attract Latino voters. And Republicans need to win over Latinos in 2016 or else right. we're going to lose. Given that his wife was Columba Bush, this was right. part of the Bush charm. Yep. I am best suited to appeal to Latinos. Where does Joe Biden break out his campaign? Pennsylvania. Middle-class Joe, I can appeal to blue-collar people in Pennsylvania yep. and Michigan and Wisconsin. I can win back. So that, to me, seems the parallel between those two. I agree. But the question, again, Dave, it, which is interesting, what Jeb Bush found out the hard way in 2015 was the party had moved on beyond the Bush name. And he was not what they were looking for. And that's going to be part of the question with Joe Biden in 2019 and 2020. Are Democrats looking for Barack Obama? A absolutely. So the for the Democrats, the question is, uh, where's their heart and where's their mind? Mm -hmm. So if you ask me, the heart of the Democratic Party is on the left. It's with Elizabeth Warren. It's with Sanders. Right. It's with free tuition. It's with all the free stuff. Mm -hmm. Their mind could be saying or should be saying, in my view, well, is that uh, is the heart the right place to be or should we be where we can win? Mm -hmm. And that's going to be a battle. That that was not uncommon. Uh, you remember in 2004, uh, Howard Dean uh, then was uh, the governor, and he was very, doing very well in uh, Iowa. But in the end, Iowa came around to Kerry because they wanted to beat Bush. Right. And that carried the day. So that it, it's going to be that sort of a battle, heart versus mind. But I, I agree with you, the heart of the Democratic Party is, I think, not with Joe Biden. Okay, question three, Professor Brady. Bernie Sanders is Donald Trump version 2.0. If Biden is, is Bush for 2.0, then Bernie is the Donald 2.0. I think that's a... In, uh, in, this, in this regard, yeah. in that if you look at 2016, a lot of factors to vote for the reason why Republicans vote for Donald Trump. Immigration. Uh, Trump talking about economic resentment. But also, if you were upset with the Republican establishment, either because you thought Republican candidates had been milk toast, or they'd not done anything about entitlement reform or about, about debt or deficits or so forth, voting for Donald Trump was an extension basically flipping the middle finger at the party establishment. Is a vote for Bernie the same as a vote for Donald Trump? Well, it certainly was in uh, 2016 against the establishment candidate. Right. 
So uh, I, that's a, I think that's a very good analysis in the, exactly the same issue way. Mm-hmm. He was the first one to say uh, free tuition. He was right. the first one to say, and now he's on payback, the loans, et cetera. This time he has some competition as to who's an anti-establishment candidate, at least politically. Uh, they've all moved to the left. Right. So that makes it a little different. But among those people, he still is, I think, the anti-establishment candidate to most Democrats who aren't happy with the fact that the Democrats remain too centrist. They're not far left enough. They're not doing enough to uh, resolve some of these issues. So I think that's, I think that's a reasonable analysis. The only caveat uh, being it's his second time around. And because he did so well in 2016, He's going to have some competitors there. It's difficult to make the transition from novelty underdog challenger the first time around to the second time around, a very established figure with a lot of money, very high in the polls. And the higher you are in the polls, hey, it looks good in the papers, but the fact is you carry a bullseye on your back. Yes, you do. All right, question four. Ideas don't matter. In this regard, who's had the best jump in the last month in the Democratic field? Pete Buttigieg. Pete Buttigieg did come out with an environmental policy the other day. It's kind of a knockoff of the Green New Deal. But his campaign has been very long on a biographical narrative, openly gay mayor from South Bend, Indiana, and very short on ideas. And if you look at better O'Rourke, also a candidate very short of ideas, there's one Democrat in the field, Dave, who has tossed out a lot of ideas, and it's Elizabeth, it's Elizabeth Warren. Yep. She's not doing very well in the polls right now. And she's not doing very well for money. She's struggling. So that's the question. Do ideas matter at this point? Well, I think ideas in the sense of long position, every candidate's going to have position papers. Nobody reads those. Right. Um, and Warren is trying to be a uh, maven of uh, policy, policy maven. I know the details. I know how to do these things. Mm-hmm. Um, she's running at that second tier. She's seven and a half, eight percent, along with Kamala and Beto's there at five, and then it drops off to Booker. Right. But she's been around a long time. People know she's running so that she is not doing, she's not doing that well on it. But Pete, I think, while he, has, while he doesn't have a set of policy ideas, I think he's shown that he's a, like Beto, different and that he's not quite so far left. So, mm-hmm. for example, on Elizabeth Warren's, so he's a counterpuncher. Yes. So Elizabeth Warren comes out and says, I've got this plan to give back, pay back, so people won't have to pay back all these college loans. Mm -hmm. Which, I might add, as an aside, is a bit amusing to me because when they pass that bill, Mm -hmm. uh, the Democrats promised to the IRS that this would be a tremendous boon because we would have all these people getting education and getting jobs, and the jobs that you pay everybody back, and it'd be great for the IRS. Now, it turns out it apparently is not so great. Mm -hmm. But he comes back, Mayor Pete comes back, and what does he say? He says, I'm not for this. Why? I'm not for this because two-thirds of Americans don't go to college, and why should those two-thirds subsidize the one-third that go to college? Because they've already got more than the two-thirds that don't. So while he doesn't have ideas in the sense in which you mentioned, I think he is positioning himself, and thus far better than uh, Beto, on uh, on counterpunching to the these ideas, so I, I think uh, they they do. Uh, another one is Klobuchar, who has simply said, 
uh, I'm yeah, I'd be for free tuition and I'd be for uh, free this, right. but it's not possible now. Mm-hmm. So uh, you you can you can make your positions known without the uh, great details. So on the I, idea side, that's Elizabeth Warren's forte. Too much detail, and and uh, the other candidates counterpunch and let let uh, and let you know where they are. Okay. Next question: Identity politics. Do you see a future in which Democrats are having a debate in South Carolina and Kamala Harris, the senator from California, who is part African-American, she's actually uh, Jamaican, uh, she actually has the temerity, the nerve, to look at Joe Biden, who's doing very well with African-American voters, including in South Carolina, and says, you know, it's all good and fine, Joe, but I'm black and you're not. I, I I don't think she would. Said in that way, that's the sort of thing that you, right. you imply as the campaign uh, campaign goes along. But I do think um, that the identity politics uh, can be harmful to Democrats uh, mm-hmm. because they, if they push too far on certain sets of issues, uh, the white uh, voters in the Midwest that they lost in uh, 2016 those are voters that have their own resentments and don't want to always be hearing about the uh, second kind of resentment. So uh, this issue of bringing up reparations, that is not popular Mm -hmm. among most voters. So I do see the issue of identity politics being put forward in such a way that it offends voters that the Democrats would need to win the presidency. Okay, next question. Cory Booker, a former student of yours here at Stanford. What happened? I remember, Dave, in 2012, yeah. Cory Booker comes to Stanford to give the commencement. And he came here to the Hoover Institution. You probably set up the meeting. I did. And he sat down in a room full of fellows off the record and talked about all the things he was doing in Newark, New Jersey, as the mayor. And I thought to myself, wow, this is a powerful force. This guy is talking solving problems. He's talking about good hands on government. He's not getting into labels. He's not being partisan. This is somebody who can go very far in politics. Flash forward to the Cory Booker of 2019, who seems to embrace the dark side of politics. Well, I think I think he thought about what does it take to win a Democratic primary. Well, first of all, he had to run. He ran for senator from New Jersey, yes. right? Frank Lautenberg passes yeah. away, and he he runs yeah. for that vacancy. And he won that, that pretty. Handily. And then he sort of openly auditions yeah. to be Hillary Clinton's running mate in 2016, right? And now he's running for president. And uh, I think that uh, he, so I think he thinks, he's trying to, he has tried to separate himself a little bit by saying we're all in this together, black and white, a bit of the Obama Mm -hmm. uh, rhetoric of 28, 2008. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I think the problem is that that issue has not caught a hold with voters very much. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think that his view is, and I have not spoken to him personally, but I believe his view is, if I'm going to win the Democratic Party, I got a nomination. I got to be further over to the left. Right. I can't be a Sanders. And he gives up then, uh, in the process of doing that, it seems to me he does give up exactly what uh, impressed uh, people at Hoover and uh, and has impressed people over the years as uh, when he was mayor of Newark. And somehow I'm a problem solver. Right. I can get things done. Now he's out talking reparations. Like he's introduced a slavery reparations right. bill in the Senate now. So that's yep. that's his thing. But I think one thing that Booker underscores, Dave, is at all times these lanes are very crowded for Democrats. And I, that's a cliche we probably should stop using. Right. But the lanes are crowded. Yes. So Cory Booker is black. Yeah. Well, Kamala Harris can also claim yep. that as well. So that lane is crowded. Cory Booker can say, hey, I was a mayor. I saw problems. Well, Mayor Pete. Yep. 
I'm a senator. Well, the line forms to the Democratic senators running this race. So it's hard for Cory Book, it seems to me, Dave, to find a niche in this field is what separates him from everybody I, I agree. And the niche he's tried is that we're all in this together. And so thus far, it has not worked. Now, the debates are coming up, and we'll see how that works. But um, yeah. it's, it's, it, I agree. It's very hard to distinguish yourself in such a crowded field. Right. And for Booker, and this gets back to the Kamala Harris question about race, if you're Cory Booker and you're struggling really in the back of the pack, do you have to think about going very negative against someone like Biden or Bernie if for no other reason just to get attention? I think you do. You do have to think about it Mm -hmm. and uh, time to do it. It, Well, he has to he has to put himself in a position so that he gets on the main floor of the debate. Right. So that he can go after them in the debate, because if he's on the second level, it's certainly not going to work. Okay. Now, the final question, Dave. Um, what happened to the great independent hope in this election? You start with the premise that 45% of the people in this election are poised to vote against Donald Trump at the drop of a hat. I would argue that if Bernie Sanders is the nominee or a controversial Democrat, 45% of the public will vote against him or her at the drop of a hat. There's dissatisfaction with both parties and the products they're putting forward. If ever there is a time for the third party candidate to come forward, somebody who can appeal to our better angels and be above the process, this is it. But Dave Brady, where is that person? Well, I think the... Well, there are many people who thought about it. Uh, yes. Certainly the former mayor of New York thought about it. Um, and I don't know if the... Well, Bloom- Bloomberg actually wanted to run as a Democrat. But yeah, so he was going Michael, Michael Bloomberg's right. had a very interesting political yeah. journey. He's a Democrat who becomes a Republican, succeeds Giuliani, yeah. becomes an independent. Yep. Then he's back in the Democratic field. And I think he was waiting to see what Biden did. Yes. If Biden did not run, he might have jumped in. I agree. Right. So, but in uh, theory, then, but in theory, a guy like Bloomberg is worth what seventy billion dollars. I yeah. think if anybody can run as a third party candidate, him. But there is a third party candidate he, named Howard Schultz. Yeah, he uh, and Bloomberg decided not to run in twenty sixteen right. because he thought he'd hurt. Uh, he thought he might help uh, mm-hmm. Donald Trump if he ran. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Schultz is talking about it, but he's nowhere. He's nowhere thus far. And I think uh, part of the reason. For, so the so the re, so the first question is. How many independents are there? In, in my profession, there's disagreement about that. I believe there are more swing voters than uh, people in my profession generally do. And by a swing voter, I simply mean someone who will vote uh, based on the candidate, who, okay. who's the candidate. So I think there are more voters like that. On the Democratic side, some of the independents lean Democratic, mm-hmm. and they are not going to go. Democratic, Democrat are not going to go for a um, independent candidate, even though they right. tend to be. In, I say they lean Democrat, and I think the reason for that is they're very opposed to Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, uh, Republicans don't want him to run because they see it as a close uh, see it as a close race. Also, right, and people see this as a. I think they so the real question is how high stakes is this election, and. Then the second question you have to answer for that is, how big is the base? Mm-hmm. And since 2004, as you you know better than I do, uh, when uh, G.W. Bush pushed the notion that we got to turn the base out, that's that's why we that's why we didn't do as well in 2000 as we should have. Right. That was Carl Rove, and it worked. Since then, the theory most people practice is you turn out the base. That's good enough. And then when Trump won mm-hmm. in 2016, even though he didn't win. Right. The popular vote, 
the base idea is great. And if you can turn the base out, you win. And certainly Trump has played to the base his right. entire presidency. So the first question is then the question is how big is that base? Right. I think that both bases, which are significant, think this election is super important. And so if you're a Democrat or a Republican at all, mm-hmm. you're, you're not changing your vote. Right. You don't want you don't want Elizabeth Warren. You don't want what the Democrats stand for, and vice versa. So I think that uh, who is an independent, it's bigger than my profession thinks, and it will it will decide the election. Uh, but I think, given the the, the Democrats, including le- Democrats who lean and Republicans who lean, they're not going to go for uh, a real independent. Is there a distinction to be made between independent versus somebody who would vote for, say, libertarians or the Green Party candidate like Jill Stein? Well, the way we, yeah, that's a good Because we all kind of lump them, well, we kind of think of independent as just not Democratic or Republican, but I right. think it's a little more nuanced than that. Right, it is. So the way we ask the question is, the way the standard question is asked is, do you consider yourself a Democrat, Republican, or independent? Mm-hmm. If you say you're a Democrat or a Republican, then you say, well, are you a strong or a weak Democrat? Right. If you say you're an independent, then the question is you're asked, do you lean Democrat or lean Republican? Mm -hmm. The trouble with that question, you're absolutely right about the nuance. The trouble with that is, suppose you asked me that two weeks before the 2008 election, and I say, oh, Obama, that, or I say, it doesn't matter the other side, I say it's uh, McCain. Now, I could truly be an independent, but what I mean by the question in that case, so this time I'm going to vote Republican, so I'm independent, lean Republican. And there are some people, others, who uh, think of themselves as Democrats, and they kind of lean that way. So they're really not independent, and we can't sort that out. And then you add to the other question is, or are you for, do you belong to another party? That adds an increasing amount. There's 5 to 7% of people who are there. So you're right. It's absolutely right. a nuanced question. And part of the reason when you read public opinion polls, all that doesn't get sorted out for you. Right. So the history of third-party candidates in America, it's a little tricky one. Uh, in terms of actually taking states away in electoral votes, uh, George Wallace uh, was a factor in this in 1968. Strom Thurmond took states away in 1948. Uh, but in more recent elections, Dave, third-party candidates are what we would call disruptors. Right. Uh, Ross Perot was a large disruptor in 1992. We're sitting here in California. He got 19% of the vote yep. here, I think, uh, and really scrambled the map. Ralph Nader did not get a large percentage nationwide, but if you look at the results in Florida and New Hampshire, uh, he he triggers the election. I know he'll go to his grave denying that, yep. but just look at the numbers. He, he cost Al Gore the election. He did. Um, but you look at 2019 and 2020, Dave, and here is Howard Schultz. And let's set aside the issue of Starbucks, which is how he made his fortune yep. and the general morality of selling people a lot of you know, overpriced coffee. Let's <laughs> put that aside. Why not Starbucks yeah. and gentrification are <laughs> good for America? But this is a man with a pretty interesting biography to tell. He comes from poverty. He's born in New York. He's born in you know, the projects. He, you know, he's a self-made man in that regard. It's a success story. And he's running an earnest campaign. He wants to talk about debt. He wants to talk about entitlements. He wants to be the adult in the room. But you look at the polls, and he's not going anywhere. Let's hearken back to 1992 for a moment and Ross Perot. How did Ross Perot become Ross Perot? Well, that is, uh, so there was uh, there was a good deal of uh, discontent in 92, but 
at that point, it seems to me it was uh, economic discontent. We right. had a recession. The President Bush, H.W., mm -hmm. had said at the convention, read my lips, no right. new taxes, and yet mm -hmm. they had raised taxes. So there was, on the Republican side, uh, discontent. And then, of course, Bill Clinton had the um, all the uh, things about the women and it had to go on um, 60 Minutes with his wife. So there was discontent with candidates. Yes. And uh, so Ross Perot looks like a fresh force, comes in. But if you remember, he was not very consistent. He came in. Dropped out. And uh, dropped, dropped out. out mm -hmm. And then he came back in. And he did well in the debate. He got in the debate. And he yes. did. Very, I remember a couple times him saying, well, that's your problem. I, I had nothing to do with that deficit. Right. Um, so he comes in in an era in which... There are more floating voters. There were mm -hmm. still kind of liberal, some liberal Republicans, and there were still many Southern conservative Democrats. Right. That's gone. That start at uh, 1994 was a huge election. The economy, most voters at that, you could use an economic model, the fair model, which went back and said, how's the economy been over the last uh, couple of years? Mm -hmm. And that was a pretty good predictor of who would win the presidency. If the economy was doing well, the incumbent the incumbent's party won. Right. That's gone. Uh, today, the main predictor of how you think the economy is doing is if you're a Republican, you think the economy is doing great. If you're a Democrat, you think the economy is doing badly. Mm -hmm. So partisanship has come to dominate that, uh, dominate that issue, and that means those blocks, Republicans and Democrats, are not going to switch as easily as they did in 1992. So if you're Howard Schultz and you're running a national campaign, Dave, and you're digging for votes. And I would assume the two places you start digging, you think of it as strip mining, if you will. You look at the easiest pickings on both sides. So I'd say you would go looking for, let's say, pro-choice, pro-environment, gun control Republicans. Mm -hmm. And then you go on the Democratic side, you'd go where Biden is going right now. And you'd look for blue-collar Democrats who feel disaffected mm -hmm. by their party. But how far does that get you in today's politics? It, again, it seems to me that'll get you a few points in a few states, but you're not going to get electoral votes out of it. Oh, I, I agree with absolutely what you said. I, I think probably given what I uh, tried to spell about what's happened post-94 and the mm -hmm. hardening of the party lines, right. I, I think it may well be that there's only uh, 10, 12 percent total votes out there that you're looking for. Mm -hmm. So one way I always used to hope for a third party would be a third party that was socially more liberal, right. but fiscally more conservative. Mm -hmm. And over time, that uh, that's down to about 10, 12 percent of the electorate. So right. as you say, he's digging in that 10, 12 percent. And as he's digging that, a lot of people are looking out and going, hey, if I vote for this guy, he's at 3 percent. You've got to be pretty pure to say, I'm going to vote for that. And my vote, right. my vote in this election particularly in the states that matter a while, I, I, can, I can affect the result. Right. And so I think he's got very narrow pickings. I agree full, wholeheartedly with you. Let's talk uh, the president for a second. Uh, most incumbent presidents, Dave, at this point, they would stay out of this race. They would very quietly raise a bunch of money. They would get their organizations together in the states. They need to get their 270 electoral votes. But they would not engage in the day-to-day. -day. Why? It's the Napoleonic rule of combat. Don't engage the enemy, and the enemy is in the process of destroying itself. So let this crowded primary field fight yep. each other. But that's not Donald Trump. Donald Trump is insulting Joe Biden by tweets. He, yeah. he, he wants to engage, and he's going to be part of the news cycle throughout this primary process. So let's talk a bit about what kind of a disrupting force Trump will be in the democratic process. 
Well, I, I they, they yeah. all want to run against Trump, and Trump's going to be their front and center, saying. So I, <laughs> I, uh, I agree with you that you should uh, the normal standard political advice which you gave to Governor Wilson and others was, gee, you're the incumbent, let them destroy themselves. Well, it's a very, it's very, it's you're the incumbent, and yeah. just act presidential. Yeah. Just do yeah. things, do rose garden yeah. ceremonies, travel, yeah. just look large, yeah. and let them look small when yeah. they fight Stay each other. Stay away from that. Not but, my, not my business. It's but, their nomination. But this guy wants to tweet storm every day. <laughs> so. I'm a mixed mind on it. On the on the one hand, uh, it suits Democratic candidates because they can <laughs> they can all uh, attack uh, Trump. So, mm-hmm. in other words, if I'm having a bad moment on uh, a policy issue, mm-hmm. doesn't matter. I can attack President Trump and say what I have is better than what he has. Right. It's it sort of saves some of them in that way. But on the other hand. He will be a force throughout the thing, and if they if they go too far on him, uh, that is, they go press the impeachment issue too much. In other words, you get so there's the there you want to be against Trump, right? Ooh, I want to be more against them. You are boom boom, and suddenly you're out in left field, uh, and the result is you're for impeachment and things that are not popular. Mm-hmm. You're uh, so Trump. Uh, can have uh, a positive. Uh, he can have an effect that uh, hurts Democrats, as well as uh, helping them in some ways. Yeah, it's a really fascinating thing to look at. On the one hand, he gives them all the fodder they need. Just if the argument at the end of the day is this guy is just not suitably presidential, that this is character more than anything else. Every day that he tweets in some way that's not presidential, that makes your case. On the other hand, if you're sitting in Congress, Dave, and Trump wants to do an infrastructure deal with you. And I guess nobody cares about spending anymore because what's a couple trillion dollars between friends. <laughs> yeah. But here's a tough choice if you're a Democratic presidential candidate. I spend my days telling people that this man is a scum of the earth. Yep. On the other hand, my party wants to cut a deal with him. So what do I do when that vote comes down? Uh, you're, well, I, mean, I just, as uh, far as I'm concerned, made the point yeah. again in a very nice, uh, better way than I made it. Uh, he, he does create. Mm-hmm. He creates. <laughs> He creates difficulties for the Democrats as well as giving them some advantages. And it may well be that it's exactly as you say, it creates more difficulties for them mm-hmm. uh, in the long run as the campaign uh, right. plays out. And God, we've got a long way to go, as you know. Mm-hmm. We're looking at thousands of tweets. We are. Um, one final area to get into, yeah. Dave, and that is the Brady parallel of today's politics versus that of the late 1880s in which you talk mostly about the Industrial Revolution. But you mentioned in passing um, that the political system survived and prospered during that age. And the political system is surviving in America. It goes on every four years, two to four years on elections. I'm not sure if it's prospering or not. I went and did a little homework on the 1880s to 1920s, Dave, kind of broadened this out. Um, It was a time of growth for America geographically. The nation added 10 states, 38 to 48. 13 presidential elections during that course of time, nine Republican winners, four Democratic winners. Though that's a little misleading because only two Democrats actually won, Cleveland and uh, Woodrow Wilson. Three presidents die in office, uh, two by by, uh, violent death and the other one uh, has a stroke. Uh, The House goes Republican in 1880. It changes hands seven times over that course of this volatility. The Senate is Democratic from 1893 to 1895 and from 1913 to 1921. And you see a growth of industry across America, which I guess you would argue is the growth of technology today in America. But getting back to this idea, Professor Brady, of the political system prospering in that time versus today, why did it prosper then and why is it not prospering now? Well, 
Or if it is I, prospering, correct me. Well, I believe the, the answer, you, you uh, sort of gave the answer in the question, which is, so what happened is there was with the first industrial revolution, mm -hmm. uh, which was not as big or as hard as this one because really it only covered about a third of the world. Right. Uh, so the debate in the United States and the issues in 1896 were sort of the same. What about the elite? Well, I mean, too many immigrants. Mm -hmm. And the parties uh, chose pretty clear positions with uh, the Repub uh, Democrats giving the nomination to William Jennings Bryan. We're going right. to free coin silver. We're going to give a lot of stuff away. It'll mm -hmm. help farmers. And, and the Republicans who had gold and silver Republicans right going into the convention. Right. Uh, they decided they came down on the side of gold. So what happened, in my view, was the uh, ship of modern capitalism was moving, mm -hmm. the gold standard, et cetera. And the Republican Party adopted that, right. won the election, and then, just as you said, the economy grew, did, did very well until the 1920s. And so the Republicans captured that, people were employed, it, it, things worked out. Why is that not happening now? Because... Uh, we're not having the growth rates uh, mm -hmm. uh, today that we uh, that we had uh, in the 1890s, and therefore the political system is under more pressure. Though the political system made great change, I'll just mention one. In the uh, prior to the 1890s, uh, members' career, members' political career, was in the political party, not in the Congress or in the Senate. What do I mean by that? So. Uh, the elections were very competitive, as you said. People mm -hmm. flip-flop in and out. So the par political parties built portfolios of office, and they would go to, say, governor, uh, they would go to a senator from Illinois, Davis, and say, you know, we need you to run for governor of Illinois because uh, if you don't do this, we're going to lose blah, blah. And th they would do it. And the, re and the reason is because the party, uh, well, the party had a portfolio of offices that could reward you, right. i.e., Supreme Court justice. Right. And they could, uh, they could pass those things out. After that and the introduction of the primaries and all that stuff, what happened is members' careers were within the institution because the party could no longer control whether you even got the nomination. Right. So careers became internal to Congress. So I'm, I'm a congressman or congresswoman, mm -hmm. a congressman at the time, and my career is in the House, my career is in the Senate, my career is not in the party. So there were changes that occurred during that time successfully. At this point, the fact that we don't have economic growth sufficient to resolve uh, this set of problems and with the problem of automation and stuff coming up. Uh, these are really hard problems and the political system is under stress as it was then and I don't, I have yet to see the solution to it. Are you saying it would be a better America if we had a Mark Hanna in charge of our political parties? Hanna being the Republican boss. Yeah, I've always, I have, <laughs> I've actually always thought that there was uh, nothing really wrong with those smoke-filled rooms. I mean, there were some things wrong. But at least with the smoke fell rooms, uh, you didn't get purists. You got people who said, who can win? X can win. So I think the Republican Party would have got uh, different candidates. Uh, uh, then 1996, I think they wouldn't have got Bob Dole. I think they would have got Pete Wilson, for example. Because uh, I think he had a chance to win because he was pro-choice, mm -hmm. moderate, and he could win. And I didn't think uh, Dole could win, given that he was from Kansas, somebody he was stuck with. But when you have primaries and, uh, and, and you open the process up to 
uh, people who are committed uh, with little amounts of money and going to get out and vote and uh, so on, then you're then you're going to have you're going to have a problem. So, Dave Brady, if we end up going to Milwaukee next year without the Democratic nomination already determined, we don't have smoke-filled rooms in this day and age. Mm. The Democrats will never have a smoke-filled room. What are we going to have? A back room full of people munching on kale? <laughs> I think there'll be probably a back room vegans, and I, I don't know what the trade-off. Uh, the trade-offs are going to be much harder. Mm-hmm. Uh, than they were last time in '52, as you know, the Democratic side there were there were trade-offs, and right. even in '52, Eisenhower cut a deal with uh, Governor Warren mm-hmm. to keep the California delegation for him as a favorite son through the first ballot because they right. were going to vote for Robert Taft, and in the process, they promised uh, the governor first Supreme Court seat that came mm-hmm. open, which happened to be uh, Chief Justice. So those are the kinds of deal they cut. I don't, I don't, I don't know who's in a. I don't even see, given the way parties are presently constructed, as your question strongly implies, I, I don't see who who's even capable of making that trade-off. It's more, sort of more like an SDS convention where they, nobody can Students for a Democratic Society, where nobody could chair the meeting because that would seem to be undemocratic. So that's an interesting question uh, with the Democrats. Who would actually determine how the deal would get brokered? Uh, in theory, the Democratic National Committee chair would run the show. He's not a dominant figure, though, in Democratic circles. In theory, the former president of the United States, Barack Obama, would step in and help broker things. Well, if I'm running against Joe Biden, I probably don't want Barack Obama in the room to terminate I think it's a done deal. Maybe I bring in the Clintons to help out. <laughs> well, no, because then Hillary Clinton will walk away with the nomination. <laughs> so I'm not sure exactly how they sit down and get this all hashed out. But you're right. This is the Kool-Aid we drink from in the yep. in the summer months, the all idea right. of a brokered convention. Yeah. Well, I think you're absolutely right. I just don't see... So obviously the sort of person who headed the campaign will be talking with other people, mm-hmm. but I don't see how they can enforce any deals. Yeah, it's, you know, we talk about this every four years, the idea of a convention not being settled, and sure enough, the yeah. first four primaries settle things very quickly for us. Final question, Dave Brady, you live and swim in this stuff, uh, but you do it at a pretty high level in terms of interpreting polls and things like that. The listener out there who just wants to sort of casually wade in on a weekly basis and maybe look at a couple poll numbers, read some good articles, where would you steer them? I, uh, well, I, uh, partial, of course, uh, Doug Rivers poll, you go. The con- you go but that problem. poll is included. Uh, I would look uh, at Real Clear Politics mm-hmm. because Real Clear Politics, uh, some, every poll has some error built into it. And Real Clear Politics averages across all the polls, right. uh, which takes care of uh, some of the errors. And uh, they're uh, pretty straightforward, straight shooters. And so I would, uh, that's where I'd look, uh, as I do every day. Okay. Well, Dave Brady, I look forward to seeing you in a couple months, and we'll kick this around yet again. Great. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to Area 45, a Hoover Institution podcast on the policy avenues available to the 45th President of the United States and those who will challenge him next year. If you've been enjoying Area 45, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to us and tell your friends all about us. You can find the Hoover Institution online at www.hoover.org. And while you're there, do yourself a favor and sign up for the Hoover Daily Report, which delivers the best work of Hoover's fellows, including Dave Brady, straight to your inbox weekdays. The Hoover Institution has Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter feeds. Our Twitter handle is at Hoover Inst. That's at Hoover I-N-S-T. For the Hoover Institution, this is Bill Whalen. We'll be back soon with another installment of Area 45. Until then, take care. Thanks for listening. For more podcasts from the Hoover Institution, please visit hoover.org or Hoover's channels on iTunes, 
iTunes U, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. I'm Chris Dower for the Hoover Institution. Thanks for listening.